Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. Right, welcome everyone to the July already 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club podcast. Special thank you again to sponsors Limmer Education and ESO for allowing us to be here together today. And I'm very excited. I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon. And we are over the moon excited to have with us one of the lead investigators on this project, Dr. Elizabeth Donnelly. For those of you at home, a reminder on the paper that we're reviewing, Violence Against Paramedics, a protocol for evaluating two years of reports through a novel point-of-event reporting process, and this was published in JMIR Research Protocols. As always, this article is paired with a column written by our very own Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce in EMS World called Journal Watch. I encourage all of you to go ahead and check it out. It is at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And before we dive right in, I want to remind all of you listening live with us that you can use the chat feature on your screen at any time to type in questions and comments, and we will be bringing those into the conversation as we go. And with that, let's kick this off. I think, first of all, People are very excited to get to meet you, Dr. Donnelly. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got involved in this project, how you got involved in EMS research? <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Dr. Crow. I appreciate the uh, invitation to be here today. Um, I have been an EMT for 7 billion years. Like I have been an EMT since 1999. Go ahead and do the math on that one. Um, so I've been an EMT longer than I've pretty much been anything else in my professional life. Uh, I am also by training a social worker. Uh, I have a PhD in social work and I have spent my professional life doing research related to workforce health issues that are relevant to paramedicine. So really I'm interested in what can we do to keep the folks on the trucks safe? And that has sort of been my driving force. And for the last couple of years, I've had the privilege to collaborate with uh, my colleagues at Peel Region on this project, which is probably one of the coolest things I've ever had the opportunity to be involved in. And I'll agree with you. This is a really cool project and it, it's something that we've talked about for a really long time, but this research is allowing us to actually take some action and to learn about this unique problem, which is violence towards EMS clinicians, um, particularly during EMS encounters. So I'll, I'll go through some of the objectives before we dive into what this project entails and how the data are collected and all of that. But the goals were really to try to get an estimate on the prevalence of violence and create a descriptive profile. So if we can measure it, we can start to address it. Um, and there, there really aren't many good estimates of the prevalence of violence. I know that when I was first starting off as an EMS research fellow at the National Registry, one of the first things we took on was a survey of EMS clinicians. And you know, with survey work, of course, there are unique limitations, but it was alarming to us that even in the survey, we didn't tell them what we were looking for. We just called it a work-life study. Uh, the number of clinicians who reported having either received physical or verbal threats or actual physical assaults was alarmingly high. Um, and it, even when you limit it over a tight window of over the last 12 months, the number is still staggering. And so getting this kind of estimate from real EPCR data is so important to get us a better look at well, what's really happening. Um, and then the next part, being able to identify characteristics related to calls where there might be a higher risk for violence, being able to predict it so that we can prevent it or mitigate it. Uh, and then looking at themes of intolerance, whether that be intolerance based on gender, race and ethnicity, or sexual orientation. So all of these, we will talk about your, your study, and this is a, a unique article, which I'd, I'd like to dive in. So let's talk about 
this article is actually a research protocol, which is a little bit different than our traditional research study. So could you walk us through the how and the why you decided to submit a research protocol before actually publishing a study? Well, I think part of it is transparency. We wanted to let people know where we were headed with this uh, this research. And um, also we'd done the work, like we'd done the work, we developed a protocol, all of this was sort of excellent thinking that we'd done. And so we thought it would be useful just to put it out there to let folks know not only sort of where we were, where we were heading, but what we were hoping to produce at the end of it. I, and I think that's so important, particularly with a topic like this, where there can be some strong feelings, strong emotions attached to it. Public awareness may not be there. So having this kind of a document before publishing results of a study can be very helpful for generating that awareness at all different levels. And Thanks. The, We've had a fair amount of interest in it already. So it's. it's oh, I'm sure. And, <laughs> I hope that there's much more interest as well and that others will replicate this work because you should truly be congratulated. This is a great contribution and I'm very excited about what's to come from it. Uh, I'm going to invite my colleague, Dr. Tony Fernandez to join because I wanna dive in before we talk about the tool itself, it's always really important for us to talk about where the study took place so that we can think about, well, where are the likely parallels and where might things be a little bit different? So Tony, I'll turn it over to you to kick off a little bit of methods. Well, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Donnelly, for joining us today. You and I um, have quite a history in EMS research, so I'm uh, excited to talk to you about this one today. Uh, we were we were puppies back in the early 2000s, right? Um, so let's, uh, let's before we dive too far into the research, right? I, I, I think it's important. I like to always get a good understanding of the population. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Peel Region Paramedic Service in Ontario and, and, and kind of where, so we can better understand uh, who we're talking about. For sure. So Peel Region is a, a region that's made up of three separate municipalities just outside of Toronto in Ontario. It is probably one of the largest EMS services or paramedic services. They don't tend to use EMS in Canada uh, in Ontario. So um, it has hundreds of paramedics. It runs tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of calls. So it is a large service uh, that services uh, several municipalities right outside of uh, Toronto, the Toronto area. I think if you'll indulge me with just a few minutes of backstory, I think one of the really important pieces to understand about this project is that it didn't start out as research. What happened was one of my, uh, the Peel paramedics was um, uh, assaulted on a call and she decided that it wasn't okay, that it wasn't something that paramedics should have to put up with. And she decided to try and change it. And so with the support of her administration, she developed a portfolio of interventions meant as a workforce health initiative so that it really wasn't about research. It was about how do we keep our folks safe? And as this initiative developed, um, my colleague Justin uh, Moss got involved and then I got involved and we saw that there was a potential to like learn a lot about it. But this and this research in this case is actually a secondary to these this work that they've done to try and keep paramedics safe. Um, one of the first things they did was a, a survey. Um, looking at, you know, how many paramedics are experiencing violence, are they reporting it, why are they reporting it, or not reporting it, um, and what the survey illustrated, and we published this paper back in, I think, 2021, um, looked at this culture of underreporting, that violence in paramedicine and EMS is seen as widespread and chronic, that it's unavoidable, that you can't do anything about it, that it's often perpetrated by people who won't uh, have consequences to the, their violence. Um, and so the supervisors are unresponsive, police are unresponsive. So you just have to deal with it and it becomes a professional competency. Tolerating violence becomes an expectation of being in EMS. And what Mandy Johnston, who's the, the woman that I referenced earlier, who started this whole project, said is no, it's not. It is not something that I should be expected to deal with. 
you wouldn't expect this behavior in an office. You wouldn't expect this behavior in other workplaces. Why is it okay here? So that really at the genesis of all of this is working towards combating this idea that we as frontline personnel just have to suck it up. It really isn't the case, but we really haven't had tools up till now to combat that in a way that's accessible. So this tool and everything that we're gonna be talking about moving forward and the success of it is really rooted in organizational commitment to address violence by being responsive, by being communicative, by advocating, advocating for paramedics, advocating with police, advocating with legislatures that this, if we're really interested in fixing this issue, it's not just about a tool and it's absolutely not about research, but it's about an institutional commitment to try and keep our folks safe. And that is so important. And thank you for, for putting that out there. We, we oftentimes, as you said, we just think that it's it's part of the job, right? And and it shouldn't be that way. So, um, and I think this paper is really important and is going to go a long way in help, helping us get to understand that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so to that end, uh, the, the EVR reporting system is very novel. Um, and I think that uh, I'd love it if you can tell us a little bit more about that system, not only kind of where what it collects and how how it works with your EPCR system, but a little bit more about kind of how did, how did you go about uh, uh, developing the system? Well, uh, there was a lot of different mandates when they came forward. It had to meet reporting guidelines. It had to like workforce health and safety guidelines, um, exposure guidelines, and it also had to be really easy. I mean, how many paramedics do you know who love doing paperwork, especially extra paperwork that doesn't go anywhere and is never responded to. You're not going to get a ton of folks that have interest in doing that. So it had to be trip over accessible, as easy as it possibly could be. So this tool, which is actually really small, uh, is embedded as an add-on to the EPCR. When a paramedic is filling out their EPCR, so immediately after the call, they receive a prompt. Did you experience violence on this call? Yes or no? If they tick yes, then they get this form and you see it, you've got it up now. And a lot of the information is auto-populated from the EPCR. So call characteristics, time, all that sort of stuff. So paramedics don't have to re-enter that information. A another thing they did is a lot of drop-downs. So it's not a lot of free text narrative. You don't have to spend a lot of time. It's just click, 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 click. Um, and then the only actual sort of narrative section is the what happened piece of it. So tell us what happened. Um, there is indicators for I was physically harmed. I was emotional. I experienced emotional upset and results of this call. And there's also embedded in that a place for supervisors to follow up. So if a supervisor gets this report, they have to follow up and say, hey, we put a hazard flag on or, hey, we've referred this to human resources or, hey, we're just checking in and making sure you have what the, you have what you need. So there is a, a built-in mechanism for the supervisors to respond in addition to um, the form itself that the paramedics fill out. We do have a consent built into it as well. Um, there's a tick box. So if paramedics don't want this form used uh, in a secondary data way for research purposes, they can opt out um, and then we don't ever see those reports. So that is the form. Yeah, and that's uh, what, a, what a great add on. And just the, um, the how I just want to emphasize the fact that you're able to link it to your PCRs, <clears throat> excuse me, and prevent the double documentation, because I really do think that that's uh, likely has gone a long way to uh, make this a successful reporting system, because to your point, no one wants to do double documentation. Folks don't want to do single documentation most often. So um, I think that uh, that it's, it's a fantastic. Um, so yeah, this was not initially designed as a, a research study, but um, you did do some research and you, you, you're entering into some research using these data. Um, so for this uh, study, that the manuscript we're talking about today, um, you had three specific objectives. Um, can you tell us what your, what uh, you had you know, three research questions around your objectives? Can you talk to us about your research questions and kind of what they were and how you addressed each one? Well, I, there's, 
three research objectives, and there's going to be three papers that correspond to those objectives. The first one is hopefully being submitted this week, knock on wood. Um, so <laughs> um, hopefully that will be out and available soon. The first thing we wanted to do is look at sort of description and prevalence, like how often does this happen? What is happening? I, Remley, uh, or Dr. Crow, pardon me, um, noted earlier that oftentimes what we've done in the past is look at look at this through surveys. And you know, if I were to ask you, like how often has this happened to you in the last 12 months? Let's say, for example, rather than I say, how often have you experienced violence in the last 12 months? I were to ask you, hey, how often have you eaten pasta in the last 12 months? Like, so how often would you be like, ah, uh, I don't know, maybe once or twice a week. And then I'm going to do but I was traveling, but then I was on that keto thing for a minute. And like, it's a guess, right? It's an absolute guess. So the difference in reporting with this tool is that let's say you're rolling out of an Italian restaurant and I come up to you and I'm like, hey, what'd you have? Did you have gnocchi? Did you have spaghetti? Maybe some ravioli. So <laughs> you were, you're, the ability to capture what happened is immediate. And so it's way more credible than if um, you're asking people to say, how often has this happened to you in your lifetime? Which is just, it's a, just a guess. So um, we're looking at, so how often is this happening? What is happening? Essentially using this new sort of framework. Um, we were also able to capture not just physical violence. When we think about violence against paramedics, oftentimes we think about getting hit, you know, getting, you know, knocked down, physical violence. That's the stuff that tends to um, generate paperwork. <laughs> but that's not the only kind of violence that people experience. Verbal abuse, hugely common. Um, and um, you know, harassment and intimidation, sexual assault, sexual harassment. Those are all different kinds of violence that this tool captures. So what we were able to do or what we're, what we're doing is not only just describing physical assaults, but we're also able to describe some of that more ephemeral sort of, you know, tent like when someone calls you a name, that's violence. You're not allowed to call someone. I mean, for those of you who have um, looked at the article, or if you're going to look at the article, we do use some salty language in it. Um, <laughs> so you can take a look EMS? at that. No. I cannot Sorry? believe there's salty language in EMS. <laughs> well, there's definitely salty language in EMS. There's salty language in this paper. <laughs> So, but, you know, capturing all of those different kinds of violence and being like, all of them count, all of them leave a dent that, you know, we as EMS are professional helpers. And so there's something really dissonant about having people attack us while we're trying to help. So we're just like, what's happening and how often is it, how often is it happening? So is it happening you know, once every three weeks, is it happening every day? We just don't know right now. We don't know how often people are experiencing violence. So that's the first paper that we're doing. And that hopefully is the one who'll be, um, will be coming out soon. Um, the uh, risk factors, part of this is about keeping people safe, right? And so if we can figure out if there are call characteristics that may uh, be, um, that may be more place someone at a higher risk for violence that's worth knowing right and so like we were able to look at primary problem codes we were able to look at time of day we were able to look at sort of the demographic profiles of the perpetrators to figure out all right so where where is most of this reported violence coming from then you know if we can create mechanisms and say hey and on these sites on these kinds of calls we need to have more help or we need to have our antenna up or that sort of thing um, is really, really important. Hazard flagging, putting flags on addresses so people are aware there's been violence reported at an event in the past. These are all tools and processes that can be even put in place if we can create a risk profile for violence. 
right? Uh, the third piece is the contributing circumstances. Um, what's going on? And this is where those narratives come in handy. Um, we're able to look at the narratives and be like, all right, so what is actually happening? And where are sort of, where are potentially different kinds of EMTs of women are targeted more more often for sexual violence. Um, people who are minorities may be more targeted for racial violence. People who are LGBTQ plus may be more targeted for homophobic violence. And so again, we can't get at that um, oftentimes with a survey, but with these narratives, we can go through and figure out, all right, so how often is this happening? So it's just more detail and more nuance about the experience of being a paramedic in this field that really makes it compelling. Um, Love it. And it's so uh, important uh, to tell each one of these individual stories. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I wanted to, you, you did say earlier that this was not specifically designed for research. And that I thought that that was really important that folks had a nice and easy way to opt out uh, beforehand. I'm sure that that helps for administrative data collection purposes. But in order to do your study, there had to be a, a lot of other ethics uh, and consent requirements that you had to um, maneuver through. Uh, can, yeah. can, can you tell our audience about some, some of those things that you've that you worked your way through? For sure. I mean, it's really important to make sure you're behaving in the most ethical way possible when you're dealing with sensitive data. So the way this study was designed is through a secondary use of data mechanism. So the date, these data were collected for Peel Region to look at, to figure out how they can keep their folks safe. Um, but very much like a chart review, at the end of a study period, we say, hey, we have this this is this sort of block of data and we want to look at it in a secondary way. It's already existing. We're not collecting it. There's not any sort of contact. We're not do, going out and doing primary research at all, but we want to go and look at these data and see what we can see. Um, and so there's not, it's consenting is a little different than if you were participating in a study voluntarily and you said, yes, I understand. I understand I can withdraw my data, that sort of thing. Um, so it's a secondary use of data initiative, but we did have to be really careful because especially in these narratives, there may be identifying information. And so we had to be very conscientious that we don't ever report anything in a way that can be identifiable. So, because we do have information that potentially could get traced back to someone at some point. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to be as respectful of everyone as we can. At the same time, it's really important that paramedics are able to tell their stories. And so we did get clearance through the University of Toronto to um, do this work. So it has been cleared as a secondary use of data project. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, even though it's secondary use of data, the ethical considerations are uh, no small matter. So I, I appreciate you going over that with us. Um, so diving back into the into the, the paper, uh, one of the things I, I think that I, I read there was that the EBIR is completed um, after nine one one responses. Um, I was wondering if there if uh, what was the rationale for that, and if there was if there's some thought on potentially uh, expanding to other portions of EMS like medical inner facility transports where we also might uh, experience some uh, assaults and the like. For sure. I think that anytime you fill out an EPCR, you could potentially, even interfacility transports. I, I worked, I did transport work for a couple of years, and I always had to do a run report regardless of if it was interfacility or not. Now, I can't say that my wildly singular experience is, is universal, um, but um, I think that, you know, anytime that there's a patient contact, there should be a potential to be able to report this. Um, I did have a fascinating conversation not too long ago. Um, about whether or not it would capture like random violence where someone is, like there was an incident in uh, Australia not too long ago where someone was eating breakfast and was attacked at a McDonald's and was killed. Um, you know, an EPCR, this format won't capture that sort of violence. Um, so it's imperfect in that way. Um, the other thing that this 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 tool doesn't capture it's the EVIR or external violence incident report so what 
the external violence project looks at is violence outside the organization toward paramedics. It doesn't look at inter interpersonal violence. So if you have ha you have bullying or harassment or anything that's happening within an organization, this tool won't capture that. And I think that it's really important to know that while that the, there's two different experiences of violence and we're only capturing some of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, can I but, stick my head in here? Please do, Dr. Toon, thank you for joining us. Hi, so you answered one of my questions and I was very curious about that. Well, first of all, thank you, that's exciting. The other thing I like is the fact that you had a way for it to drag the data out of the, the EPCR so people don't have to do it again and then it, it guarantees that information is factually correct. Sometimes when you go from one to another, something can get lost, but separate of that, do you um, do any, for providers that get injured, do you capture any of their follow-up medical data to find out if it would lead to a disability or retirement from the position is one question. And then the other question is, do, do any of the incidents that involve physical violence go on to the court system and then what's the outcome from that? Just looking longitudinally and over a longer period of time to see what's the real impact there. Just curious. For sure, those are two really important questions. Um, and the short answer is not within the mechanism of the EVIR um, right now. The EVIR doesn't capture who the paramedic is necessarily. And so once we, if we're sort of right now, my the work group is thinking about doing a survey to look at people's mental health and then trying to go back and see how many violence reports um, folks have submitted and see if there's a, a relationship there. But capturing folks' mental health and capturing the impact or capturing what happens to them after the encounter becomes a different pool of data. It is uh, human resources uh, concern at that point, and it it's protected and it's confidential, and we don't necessarily have access to that. Um, so anyway, anecdotally, it's absolutely related to people um, going on short-term disability, long-term disability, retiring from the profession. This tool right now, as it sits, can't capture that. Um, but like I said, my work group is going to see if we can link violence exposure to elevated rates of common mental health concerns, so post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety. Um, that's still on the whiteboard as a project. So, um, I mean, for sure, if we're going to draw attention to this issue of violence against paramedics, we need to we need to kind of have a so what. I mean, we can say people are awful to us, and oftentimes people are surprised. Oh, what people are mean to paramedics? No, <laughs> that's it's stunning to me how many people really just don't even know that this occurs. Um, so that consciousness raising and the starting that conversation is going to be important. At some point, too, we're going to need to get to that. So what? Like, what is the impact on providers? Um, and we're working on it, um, but that is a different ball of wax as far as research, because sort of getting into people's well-being is very different from an EPCR project and then how do we link them um, and then how do we preserve confidentiality so that I don't know that uh, you know Remley Crow EMT filled out these reports and Remley Crow EMT is suffering from depression like you know then that ends up being tricky as far as maintaining people's privacy so we have to be really careful about that do you want me to um, do you want me to answer about M Rem Remley for you I can no 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 <laughs> So I'm, the the I'm, the thing is is the the so what thing I think is you know and I understand limitations and I understand as you're just beginning you know as this is evolving over time but I really do think that that so what is important you know towards the if we're going to get better funding better pay you know better equipment to protect them in certain situations you know we're going to have to have some more uh, data there for that. And it would be just also very interesting to know what the outcome of physical violence is, is, you know, for providers that were severely injured, what happened to the patient? Did the patient end up in 
getting arrested into court, you know, because there's been some very high profile cases where EMS providers have been have died. And then the outcome from the uh, what's happened to the patient, the victim or who they went to rescue, you know, ends up the their punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime of the injury or death of the provider. One of the sort of interesting things that's happened uh, up in Canada is that um, one of the local uh, members of parliament, um, uh, not local, he's in BC, but um, has put forward a bill to make assault on a healthcare worker a, uh, an aggravated or a factor, an aggravating factor at sentencing. Um, so our work is actually starting to move policy because he did cite specifically Peel's work in this space. So I think that's important and moving policy is important. Um, but going to your consequences and sort of criminal charges question, I think that that work and making it an aggravating factor as sentencing is important. But first, we need to get the prosecutors to take it seriously. Before that, we need to get the police to take it seriously. Before that, we need to get the services to take it seriously. Um, one of the very cool pieces that has come out of this work is Peel Region has been able to notice trends of abusive behavior. So it's when you have eight, nine, 12 reports of violence all rooted around one person, they've been able to take that body of evidence to police and police have started shifting their view and being like, oh, maybe we should do something about this. Um, and they have been successful at having charges laid a couple of times because they have the receipts. Um, and some of it has been about um, getting sort of the mental health courts involved, getting social work involved. Um, not all violence is malevolent, but it's the result of substance use or mental health concerns. And so getting folks the resources they need so that they're not in crisis and they're not abusive to, to our folks. So they have had really positive um, results, but they needed these reports to do that. Or do, absolutely. Um, so a couple more questions before uh, we move on. I wanted to talk about your last research question, I think is really interesting about how you're going to tease out contributing factors from these narratives. Um, that is a lot harder work, I think, than it sounds to some folks. Uh, and can you can you talk to us a little bit about uh, your qualitative content analysis? And particularly, uh, there's a couple things that I'd really like you to hit on is you're defining and evaluating of uh, gender, race, and sexual orientation. Um, as well as uh, you, you had the, the the you talked about the salty language earlier, and this is the first peer reviewed study that I've seen that referenced referenced Urban Dictionary. So if you can uh, uh, walk us around that too, that'd be great. For sure. So I, the, if you're going to look at narratives, you have to figure out what you're looking for, right? And so, what's a slur? What's offensive language? You're not going to go to the dictionary for offensive language. You're not going to go to the peer review literature for, I mean, that's way too slow. You know, language and how we use language is, is dynamic and evolving. And so where do we go? It was an open question. Like, we don't know where we go to figure out if something is a slur or it's not a slur. Um, and so Urban Dictionary was sort of the best resource we could find to figure out, all right, so is this a bad word or is this not a bad word? And I mean, sometimes it's very clear and sometimes it's a little less clear. So with when we're, what we did with those narratives and um, we've, uh, we were able to sort of, we had two readers and they're going to, I'm, I'm talking in past tense because the work has happened um, since this article was published. They read all of the narratives, hundreds of them, and they coded if they thought there was sexist, racist, or homophobic language in them. And so then they and then they compared the results and they cal the calculated something called a kappa. So like how what's the degree to which there is agreement between these two readers that this language is racist, right? And then if there was uh, a difference of opinion, they they discussed it and they said, all right, is this is this not? Is this is this not? Um, and so and then they just sort of scanned it to see, all right, so how much 
racist language is there? How much homophobic language is there in the things? And turns out that um, about 30% of the narratives had sexist language as part of it. 16% uh, had racist language and 3% uh, had homophobic language in it. So of those reports, a large proportion of them, I mean, that's almost 50% had targeted language that was identified as additionally problematic. So that's how we did that. That's and I think cool. that's the power of qualitative research that would never get picked up in just discrete data elements. So taking on the task of qualitative research lets us dig deeper into some of these driving factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure does. It's, uh, and it's just infinitely important because there's just no other way we get that. So, and thank you for doing that work because again, reading through hundreds of hundreds of narratives is no small task. So no, it's really important work and uh, I, I appreciate it. I personally appreciate it. I'm sure the field will as well. Um, okay, so I've monopolized a lot of our time. This one thing, this is a secondary analysis and I know that a lot of secondary analysis, the analyses, um, you always go back and you're like, oh man, I wish we, we would have had this or collected that or, or mm -hmm. oh, why didn't we think of this when we developed the form? And without uh, giving up too much. I know you you have one uh, paper that's about to get submitted. Um, can you give us an idea? Was there anything that you that you were like, oh, I wish we had that, or that might be added to the form after your work? No, that there was. I wish we'd added something. Um, one thing that was tricky is that the paramedics could write down, like, I experienced physical violence and verbal abuse, and it gets tricky when you have you don't have discrete. You have like. You have some people who report three times violence, some people report one kind of violence. So analytically, it gets really tricky to sort of sort out yeah. because it's, it, it, I mean, that's real life. And so I'm, like, I'm not really complaining, but <laughs> because real life is tricky and complicated as well, but um, it, is, it is tricky to sort of sort out, but it's okay. And it's great work again. Um, so at, at this time, I'd like to open it up to the rest of our panelists. Uh, if they have any questions related to methods and, uh, and how Dr. Donnelly did her work, um, please join us now and let's 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 dive in. And as our other panelists queue in here, uh, we do have an audience question. And Earl asks about whether or not the PCR link is redundant to any existing occurrence reports, or if this is a novel reporting medium for Peel Region. Um, and if it is something that's redundant, how do you merge the two systems together? Uh, and the last comment here is that immediate access will very likely increase reporting. Um, so is this a dual system? Do providers have to also report to their employer in a different system, or is it all able to be scraped from the EVIR within the EPCR? That is the initial report. Part of how they developed this tool was to meet all those other reporting requirements. So it is a one and done. Now, if someone is injured and they need to go like workman's comp paperwork and that sort of thing, that would be an additional piece of work, but that would be something that would happen with the supervisor and they would be able to pull the information from the EVIR so that um, they don't have to repeat it. And I think that's an important piece, keeping it simple and not creating the extra paperwork is what's making this project so successful. And also the supervisor's commitment to responding to every one of these reports, because it was actually really remarkable. Um, in the, they had like, I don't remember, it's in the paper, like 60 um, reports on the year preceding this. And the first year of data, they had 400 and some odd reports. The next, and the in 18 months, they had exponentially more, like 900 or something. They're over 1,200 now. So like what happened is that this launched and then paramedics started seeing that there was follow-up and you got more and more buy-in and more and more people started reporting. Um, and so then it's sort of a, a, a cycle of reinforcing. And now people, they just did a, um, I'm going off the rails a little bit forgive me, but they just did a sort of a, an evaluative survey and people were saying we report not because now we felt unsafe, but because we wanna protect our colleagues. So they understand that while they may not have negatively been affected by the violence, it's important because the next person who goes to that place or attends that particular person, 
may need the heads up. So it's become a tool for the community to take care of themselves, which I think is so beeping cool. <laughs> um, excellent research, uh, Dr. Donnelly. And thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom and your work with us here today. And, and previously, I had one question on the um, EVIR. It'll let you like flag the address for a previously violent encounter. I just wondered if they, if the provider checks that box, for example, does that automatically flag that? Is there a review process that has to go through? I'm thinking on our initial education learners, that's something we would want to include in our education, that you may get this information before you ever get there. Maybe there are some precautions that you might take, having law enforcement, having a, a, another agency that assists you on the call. Just wondering what the process is after they check that box. So, the address flagging thing is interesting because um, we're finding that most violence is not occurring at private addresses, but that when an, a flag is put in place, um, it does decrease violence. So if you're at a private residence and a flag is put on the address, there's a substantially less violence um, that is reported from that address. The supervisor puts that address on there. So when the super or the, the flag, so when um, their supervisor is re reviewing it, if it's at a private address and they think it's flaggable, um, they'll put the address on. And then ideally, in sort of the best case scenario, then paramedics would get a warning from dispatch before they go to that address that there's a flag on this address. And one of the tricky things and something that my colleague Justin and I have talked about is that maybe even hazard flagging is too it's not a nuanced enough of a tool. We need to do different kinds of hazard flagging. So if you've got someone who is say diabetic and gets aggressive while they're recovering from a diabetic emergency, that maybe is a different kind of flag from someone is a, has a desire to assault paramedics and they're just angry all the time. So like, or you have someone with dementia who tends to lash out so that we could potentially put flags on a hat and addresses that um, give a little bit more information. That's down the road as well. So, but uh, yeah. unfortunately, most most violence is occurring like on streets and public spaces, you know, that sort of thing. So it's only it's an imperfect tool. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we we add um, you know, prompts all the time in terms of this is a life safety hazard. This is a high population hazard. If you're responding to a fire or something like that, you know that a school is going to get a high life safety hazard, for example. So I think the opportunity to stratify those is huge. So um, I think, but, but giving our responders a heads up, preparing them for that is incredibly important. So uh, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I just had a quick question for you. And first off, just wanted to thank you again, Dr. Donnelly for sharing your excellent work uh, and really bringing this serious public health problem to the light of day. I mean, something that we all know is there, but unfortunately haven't done much about it. So great to see that we're definitely getting that conversation started so we can get ready for so what. Um, just wanted to know a little bit more, if you don't mind, about the context uh, from an educational and training and policy perspective. Of course, nothing happens in a vacuum. And I was wondering, are the paramedics at Peel Region, was there some sort of um, policy change around this time? Was there continuing education focused on what these paramedics may be doing on scene, uh, proactively contacting police more often, or maybe staging for their own safety? We're just sort of curious what else, since there's always a lot of other things I'm sure happening in the background. Sure. Well, you remember I said it was a pretty comprehensive package that, that was launched, and this EVIR is just a, a I mean, it's a significant piece of it, but it's just a piece of it. They had a, sub, a the substantial policy change. They have a policy document that is a zero a zero tolerance standard. Um, they had a public awareness campaign, also using spicy language, saying, like, was, is it okay to treat your paramedics like this? Um, they also did a lot of continuing ed. They were able to get some sort of more pragmatic tools like soft restraints and spit hoods and made available um, to paramedics. Um, but they did a lot of, there's just constant sort of feedback talking to paramedics. And this is again, administration. So if I've got any leaders on the line here, this is your work is like, this is what we're doing. Um, the chief took Mandy and she testified before the council um, to illustrate sort of the, the dramatic problem. So it's about like 
she and she did a lot of like continuing ed and training and like understanding what physical assault is and what sexual assault is and what harassment is and telling people this is what we're capturing and this is what we're doing with these data and this is why you should report it's sort of everyone wants to know that what they do makes a difference and so as more and more data accumulated, they were able to feed this back to their folks and be like, hey, look at what we're able to do because you're telling us what's going on. So yeah, yes, policy changes. Yes, public awareness. Yes, training. Um, and they're just in the process of sort of, they're in the process right now of deploying uh, a de-escalation training and we'll probably have some data that comes from that as well. Um, they just, Mandy just testified last week and got $1.25 million uh, awarded out of the budget to train all the penal paramedics with this new training. So it's been really compelling to see what change comes from being able to generate these kind of data. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I figured there was a lot of other things going on. I know you mentioned a little bit about that, but uh, great to hear just this huge focus and that leadership buy-in in particular. Huge. We do have a website that we are publishing all of our data on, but it also has a lot of just blogs and information, and you're absolutely welcome to go and check it out. Uh, if someone can drop it into the chat for me. It's www.protectparamedics.com. Um, so it's uh, my, you can reach out and contact my colleague, Justin, myself. Um, we're all available on that page. That's where all the data are going to be posted. Um, a lot of this extra stuff, like the policy stuff and um, presentations that we do at conferences and all that sort of stuff is all available there. So please check it out. <laughs> That's where, um, where all of our work is currently being held. We'll surely be following it closely, um, especially as this continues to develop. And one of the things that you mentioned early on, but I, I want to pull it out and talk more about it is the importance of organizational culture and you know just even as an industry our culture around and eh, this is part of the job like i don't need to report it um i'm curious to hear from you as you've been doing this work how have you seen things that are working well in terms of how we're shifting the culture have you seen how supervisors are responding what are they doing well that you know we can start to replicate in some of our other systems well i think it's just this commitment to following up they this most supervisors are overwhelmed. Most supervisors are underwater. Most supervisors are male, have a thousand things pulling on them day in and day out. So it's about being like, I am going to prioritize this. This is something that I am going to spend my time and my energy, and I'm going to do it right. And so that is about talking to folks, messaging folks, letting them know what's coming, letting them know like how how this is how this will work, how you know, what's to expect and then following through. I mean, this is not gonna be a one and done sort of situation where you can deploy a two hour um, training and you're like, cool, we fixed violence. It's not, it's not gonna happen. Um, so I know, bummer. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just it's be right like- right next to BSI scene safety and then the scene is safe right, forever. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it also takes all of us questioning what we've grown up in. I mean, any of us who've been in EMS for any length of time already have learned this idea of it being an expected professional competence. And so we need to change how we think about it. Um, and then as leaders and people who've been in the field change how they think about it, young paramedics, people who are just coming into the field will come into a different pro profession that, you know, uh, Mandy tells this perfectly lovely story about, um, I mean, it's just, it's just, it gives me chills every time she talks about it, this young paramedic who unfortunately was assaulted, but then almost had immediate, like she had, she had supervisor support, the police got involved, everyone, like all of these things kicked into place that hadn't been there before. And so then, that is her norm, that this paramedic who's been on the field for, I think, less than a year, like, her community cares about her, and her community has her back, and her community says your safety is important, and you don't have to put up with this. So I think when we think about organizational culture and organizational shifts, you need leadership, but you also need sort of the informal leaders, 
You know, we all know those people who may not have the extra stripes, but are the ones everyone turns to. Sort of the, the grandpa medics, the, sort of the sage wisdom, the ones who teach us how to survive in the field, and we need them too. I love what you said. Having that follow-up and that notion of somebody cares about you is so important. A lot of my work has been focused on burnout, and I can tell you that a, a big piece of that is just feeling like somebody actually gives a crap about you. Uh, so having that follow-up is not only important for violence, but we've seen increasing work, and I know you've done a ton of great research in this space as well, on potentially psychologically traumatizing events. If we're going to you know, report that this call had a strong emotional effect for me, and you don't follow up on it, that's probably more harmful than not having the system altogether. And so I, I love that you've highlighted that. Yeah, it's so, so important. Like if you're going to ask people to <laughs> do something about it, do something about it. Otherwise it's just paperwork for paperwork's sake and they'll stop mm -hmm. reporting. I mean, medics are smart. If, if something is bull, they will figure it out right quick and they will stop. So... I feel like that should be a t-shirt somewhere <laughs> now we've got a couple of time for a couple more questions so i saw michael i saw you pop on first and then jeff um and then i have a very unpopular task towards the end here um dr donnelly i saw included in question three you included some covid related items i just wondered if that was it happened to be going on at the time or you've seen some increases in violence um due to uh, the just sort of talks a little bit about masking and things like that if you'd seen that or if it just happened to be going on at the time and it was like hey we're seeing this let's include some data on it i'm um, just wondering what spurred you to include that in question three well, I, I think that all of us saw what happened over the pandemic, that paramedics and other sort of healthcare professionals went from heroes to villains as people got tired of lockdowns and that sort of thing. And people started getting abusive and angry. And, you know, paramedics were masked and were telling people they needed to mask in the ambulances. And um, it, it was a thing and was like, let's capture it. Um, it wasn't something we set out to do. It just happened to be because we had all of these sort of stories about, um, you know, paramedics getting rocks thrown at their trucks and all people being abusive and ripping off their masks. And so we thought we'd check and see um, if that showed up in the EVRs as well. So. I think that's so important. Um, I'm glad to hear that it there was a reason to include it. Like this happened, I think sometimes we design studies and we're like, no, you cannot deviate from the methods. This is a great opportunity to include what's going on in life um, to it, especially for like, hey, this is going on. It's underreported. I, I link it back to what what Ramley just said about burnout, right? Like healthcare in general saw this during the pandemic and now connecting some dots to it, um, adapting our methods to our environment, I think is huge. So uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I think that this part, I'm glad you highlighted that, Michael, because this part is really important. You know, we heard anecdotally reports on the news all the time about flight attendants experiencing increased violence due to things like enforcing restrictions. And so it's very logical to think this is happening in EMS as well. But again, it might be seen as, oh, well, it's part of my job. I'm not going to raise a fuss about it. But now we will have the data to say, hey, you know, during the pandemic, these kinds of incidents either increased or didn't. But having that data is so important as we inform policy for future public health concerns. Absolutely. And then speaking of data, um, just wanted to really quick, I know we're at the end and this was a research protocol. So it was Focus more on the methods. And we're definitely, definitely looking forward for all those papers coming out um, with each of the different objectives and what you found. But I was wondering if you could just give us a really quick taste, maybe. Um, I know you put a couple of numbers in the paper. So just what you think are in your mind sort of the highest level of what you're able to tell us. And then as far as the risk factors and contributors, I know that's, we're definitely looking forward to that paper. Um, but if there's any kind of surprises, anything that you found the most surprising things to maybe think about um, mo potentially modifiable risk factors that you might be able to share. Sorry. Okay, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll talk about Whatever you would like to cover. Sure, sure. Thank you. So I think surprising, no, like horrifying, saddening, like, you know, we all knew. But when you put numbers on it, it's just, you know it with numbers. So 
Um, about 48% of the workforce reported violence during the study period, about 40% reported being assaulted. 80% of that violence was perpetrated by patients. Uh, interestingly, here's an interesting factor that may be modifiable. While most of the violence started on scene, it continued in the truck, and nearly 40% of the cases of violence happened at the emergency department. So patients were continuing to be violent toward paramedics while they were at the hospital. And in point of fact, the risk of violence went up if someone was on offload delay for more than a half an hour. So if you're parked with your patient, you're more likely to experience violence. Um, and we were sitting with violent patients for longer. So compared to the nonviolent patients. So that 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 is an actionable item because hospitals have resources and you know, they are part of the team and should work to help keep our folks safe. Um, mental health and substance use were really common when it come, came to sort of those primary problem codes. Um, about 60% of assaults had substance use or mental health or a combination as a primary problem code. What it boils down to is a paramedic being experienced, not just experiencing violence, but being assaulted every 46 hours and physically harmed every nine days. Um, about 10% of the workforce was physically harmed as, point, as a result of violence. And I wanna underscore, this is an underreport. I 100% guarantee that this doesn't capture everything that happened because we are working against 40 years of cultural headwinds to change behavior around this stuff. So. Those are some staggering and scary numbers when you really think about it, especially knowing that it's an undercount. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're definitely going to look forward to reading all of these studies as they come out. And since I get the last word. I do have the unpopular task I mentioned of wrapping us up on time. But before we go, I'm curious. I, I know you said you've received a lot of attention for this work. Are you aware of uh, other organizations replicating this? Or do you have any advice for anyone who might be listening to this thinking, I want to take on a project like this? Well, the EPCR vendor that built this tool has made it available to other um, services that use their APCR tool. So we've pushed this tool out to probably 50, well, no, it's, no it's, it's probably 30 services in Ontario are doing some portion of this package. Um, 15 other services have agreed to share their data so that after this peel data wraps up, we'll be able to have a whole new whack of data um, that captures rural and urban and northern Canada and like it's going to represent a much broader swath of the population. This is just like a tiny um, slice of the pie right now. Um, ask us if you want to do this. Like I'm serious y'all. All of us are stronger than any of us and I'm speaking for my team. Justin and Mandy and I want everyone to do this well. So if you want help, if you want advice, if you want to pressure your EPCR provider to build an analog tool, let me know. We will help. I think that is fantastic words of wisdom. And I want to once again extend our sincere thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and your knowledge. And please pass along those thanks to the rest of your team as well. We are really looking forward to checking this out. Uh, and. With that, I will have to wrap us up. The hour went by super fast, as it tends to do when something really interesting is going on. Uh, as a reminder for those of you who are tuning in, we've got the Education Research Journal Club podcast coming up Friday, July 28th. And we'll be back here again with an edition of the Clinical Journal Club podcast next month, August 14th. Thank you all again for joining us, and we really look forward to nerding out with you next time. Make sure you go to that webpage, www.protectparamedics.com, and thank you all. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. 
An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Thank you.